Heavenly Father, we are thankful we're back in this study. We're thankful for the book of Romans. We're thankful for how it tells us of you and your plan for our life and how you've worked all the details to bring us into your presence, sinless, holy, righteous, and justified, but nothing by our own works, Father. All of that by your work, through your Son on the cross, Father, through your plan from the foundations of the earth, and because you loved us before we knew you. And now, Father, as we come to the point we're at in this book, and at the end of chapter 11, and moving into chapter 12, Father, uh, we get to turn our attention now back to uh, the righteousness you've given us lived out. We thank you, Father, for the exhortation that Paul gives us. But, Father, perhaps in the most challenging section of this book now, Father, we have to consider what we're doing with what you've given us. And so, Father, I ask that each heart in this room would be prepared to think soberly about the lives we're leading in your name. It's easy to have our heads filled with the knowledge of this book and feel quite satisfied that we have figured it out until we reach chapter 12. And then we realize, Father, how much we have yet to do and to understand. So give us more grace still, Father, as we seek to understand you and to serve you better. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, like I just mentioned, we're moving out of Paul's explanation of Israel's unique place in his plan of salvation. And that means we're moving back into Paul's main point of teaching in this letter. And before we do that, we still have the summary that Paul gives us at the end of chapter 11. And we're going to consider that now. But it serves as a really good transition to get back into the main part of his letter, to this essay, as I've called it, on righteousness. So let's just pick up there. Look at the end of chapter 11, verse 28. And here's Paul summarizing his explanation of Israel. And he says, From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, well, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. This is Paul's summary. What he's doing is bringing together everything we've learned from chapters 9 through 11, for the most part, the the main ideas of 9 through 11. And what he says is, thinking about Israel, and remember, the definition has never changed. We're still talking about those who descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the literal, physical Jewish people. That group of people, from the standpoint, or you could say from the perspective of the gospel, God has made that group of people his enemy, and he's done it for your sake. But God is not making Israel an enemy in all respects. Paul says he's made them to be an enemy only in relationship to the gospel, that is to Christ. Israel rejected Christ. They still today, and certainly in Paul's day, they impede the movement of the gospel. So in that sense, they're an enemy of the gospel. But Paul then goes on to say that God made Israel to be this way for our sake so that we might receive God's mercy for a time. So... Here's the thing you're supposed to understand coming out of chapter 11. You're supposed to understand the situation of Israel from God's perspective, which is something very astounding, Paul says. Rather than forsaking his own people, what God is actually doing in hardening Israel is showing you how much he's still working with them. Now, that may sound counterintuitive at first, but think about it. The fact that Israel has been hardened, that they are so resistant to the gospel, and yet they still remain a people, They haven't disappeared. They've just remained consistently opposed to Christ. Paul says, that's proof to you that God is still keeping his covenants and his promises to Israel. 
How so? Well, look, first of all, he says, they are still beloved for the sake of the fathers. In other words, God is still keeping every promise he gave to their fathers, that is, to the patriarchs. And among the things God promised that he would do for Israel to those fathers is he said, if they did not obey the commandments of the law, that he would reject them for that disobedience for a time. And I'll read you that curse, as it's called in the Old Testament. It's in Deuteronomy. Moses says this to Israel in Deuteronomy 29.14. And it's a bit of a passage here, so just listen to it, or you can read along in Deuteronomy 29. In verse 14, he says to the people of Israel, Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of our Lord God and with those who are not here with us today, which is to say future generations of Israel are also being included in this covenant. And then he says in verse 18, so that there will not be among you a man or a woman or a family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man. And every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot his name out from under heaven. Then the Lord will single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law. Now, the generation to come, your sons who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it, they will say, All its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, no grass grows in it, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adam and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? Now, pausing there, do you get the story so far? Moses has told the people of Israel, Now, this covenant you just made with God, it's not just you. It's all generations of Israel. And in this covenant, it says that if you do not live according to the words of this covenant, you'll have to suffer all the curses. That requirement isn't just on you. It's on every generation of Israel after you. They all have the same obligation. And then he says, when they don't meet the terms of the law, and I bring all these curses that I've said I will bring against Israel, then others will look at your land as it sits there desolate. And they'll be saying things like, look at this land. It looks like Sodom and Gomorrah. He's trying to emphasize just how bad these curses will be on Israel for their disobedience under the law. And then that question gets asked that I just read. The nations will start asking themselves, why did God do this to his own people? Why did he do this to the land of Israel? Moses answers, then men will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they have not known. And therefore the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath, and he cast them into another land as it is this day. So that's Moses prophetically telling us what people would be saying one day. That's what people have been saying throughout the last 2,000 years. What happened to Israel? They've been cast out of their land. Why did God do it? The answer is because he's keeping his covenant. Did you see that? It was the covenant that required God to do what he just said he was going to have to do. And when you see it happen, it's not God forsaking his people. It's God keeping his covenant. He's just keeping the negative side of the covenant. You see what we're saying? 
Israel is currently enduring a millennial-long period of judgment outside the mercy of God, apart from a remnant, as Paul explained. They are enduring it, not because God has forgotten his people, but because he's keeping the promises he made to them in that very covenant. So incredibly, Israel's current circumstances prove that God is continuing to love his people in the sense that he's still keeping his word for them. Paul says that from the perspective of God's choice, Israel remains beloved by God. So for the 2,000 years they've been under judgment, they have been loved in the midst of it because the alternative would have been they would have disappeared. Speaking in terms of society, speaking in terms of anthropology, People disappear. They assimilate into other cultures. They lose their identity. But magically, if you want to say that, mysteriously, not so, right? It's, it's God, we know. But from the world's point of view, mysteriously, the Jewish people just seem to stick around. That's proof that God is working with them. And in the past century, they have finally begun to return to their land, which is itself evidence that God is still working with them. That's our proof. And therefore, we can know that not only is he currently fulfilling those promises, but he's going to keep fulfilling promises to include the ones that have yet to be fulfilled, those, quote, good ones that we're still waiting for. Just as when a parent disciplines a child properly, you don't look at that as evidence that the parent doesn't love the child. Quite the opposite. It's evidence of a parent's caring heart. That's what we're watching God do with Israel. Now, nevertheless, we hear this story and we start to wonder yet again, well, maybe God's not very fair or loving to his own people. Perhaps you'd like to see the Lord overlook Israel's rejection of Christ. Perhaps you'd like to overlook their failure to keep the covenant that they said they were going to keep before the Lord. But if that's what you're thinking, be careful what you ask for. Because you're asking God to do something you don't actually want him to do. You're asking God to be unfaithful to his promises. Because you might think you're doing Israel a favor with that petition, but in reality, you're destroying your own basis for faith in God. If God can do what you would ask him to do in this case, that is, ignore his promises to judge Israel for their failures under the covenant, well then, friends, what prevents God from doing the same thing to you? That is to say, if he could ignore his promise to judge Israel, well then, maybe he'll also forget the promise he made to give you eternal life. You can't have it both ways. You can't have God be trustworthy in one kind of promise and completely untrustworthy in another kind of promise. He is either a God who is trustworthy and he always keeps his promises, whether they're good or bad, or else he's not trustworthy to keep any promise and you have believed in vain. What we want is our cake and eat it too. We want God to only be nice. That is by our definition of what we think that is, right? Paul emphasizes this conclusion in verse 29 when he says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When God gives a gift, it cannot be refused or lost, for our possession of it didn't depend on ourselves in the first place. Likewise, when God places a calling on a person or on a group of people, that calling is never revoked because God does not call in error. And so he doesn't need to change his mind later. Now, Paul's applying this principle to nations, right? His call on Gentiles or call on Jews, etc. But the, the principle here applies equally to individuals. That is, your gift of eternal life is irrevocable. Once you've been called and justified, your standing in Christ and the righteousness that was given to you cannot change because God's not going to change his mind on something like that. He made a decision before the foundations of the earth concerning that thing. As Jude says in Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. 
Your gifting, rather, is irrevocable. And I would go a step further and say that the calling that God puts on a man or woman is also irrevocable. God calls us, men and women, to serve him. And he does it in certain capacities. He gives us certain opportunities. He gives us certain spiritual gifting to meet that calling. And that never changes. Your spiritual gifts don't come and go. You can't ask for one and get a new one tomorrow. You have what God appoints at the moment of salvation. It's what you get and it's what you're to do with it that is dependent on that. And it's all part of a single calling and it doesn't change. It's a permanent duty for life. But regrettably, in the weakness of our flesh, you and I may act in ways that are contrary to our calling. And we've all seen men and women who begin in ministry in some capacity only to walk away from it later. Which leaves us wondering, did they reject God's calling or did he reject them? Someone who walks away from God's calling is disobeying God, and someone who takes up a ministry without God's calling is presuming on God. In the case of Israel, God gifted the Jewish people with covenants, and he called them to be his people for eternity, and those things, Paul said, cannot be reversed. And then in verse 30, Paul says, God is also working in this plan for the benefit of Gentiles. And here's where he begins to show you the wisdom of God, the astounding plan of God. He says, We were once in Israel's place, not us personally, but our people group, Gentiles. You go back far enough in history, and you find a time in which Gentiles, that is everyone who was not Jewish, was outside God's mercy. And our collective disobedience, that became cause for God to reach out and establish his plan of redemption. And his first move was through a single man, a guy named Abram, gifting him with a covenant by which God established something called the Jewish people. Those people would be the first among all human beings to receive God's mercy in his plan of salvation, apart from an individual family line tracing back to Adam. Why did God do that for Israel? Because of our disobedience. That is, they were the solution for the problem we created, that all mankind suffered from. God used our disobedience as the basis to bring about a plan of salvation through one group of people. But then, when the plan that God initiated in Israel, when it culminated in the arrival of Christ, which was where the plan was headed from the very start, right? When Christ finally came in in fulfillment of all those covenants and promises, it was Israel that acted disobediently. They were the ones now who sinned by rejecting that Messiah. So then God uses their disobedience as just cause to show mercy to the Gentiles now who previously were not receiving it. And that's the period we're still in today, Paul says. But then in verse 31, Paul says, This course has not finished yet. We have one more turn before we reach the finish line. And a day is coming when the Lord is going to yet again bring mercy to his people Israel. Why will he do that for them? Well, because he owes them the same opportunity for mercy that he gave to disobedient Gentiles in times past. Remember, in times past, Gentiles were not seeking for God. We were not willing to consider Jesus as anything. We didn't deserve his mercy. He just elected us to receive it. We're very much the way Israel is now in that respect, right? Israel's not looking for Jesus. They're not seeking God in the right way. They have no interest in him. And that's exactly who we were too. He acted on his own to bring mercy to Gentiles at a point in the past. And Paul says now that Israel has become disobedient, he's going to find an opportunity to do the same thing for them in a coming day. So then Paul asks the obvious question. If God was willing to overlook our disobedience in the past to bring us Christ when we weren't looking for him, then in fairness, don't we expect him to overlook Israel's disobedience now and bring them to Christ in a future day? One day they'll be brought to faith in Jesus too, as Paul explained earlier in this chapter. 
as he comes to save that nation. So you have this in-again, out-again pattern in which one group's disobedience becomes cause for God to start working in the other, and then he flips it to be fair to both sides, coming back to Israel in the end. The central flaw or conceit of replacement theology, that false teaching that believes that the church has somehow replaced Israel in the plan of God, the central conceit in that thinking is to overlook the final turn in God's plan. A replacement theologian gets three-quarters of the plan right. They acknowledge that Jews once were given mercy. They agree Gentiles were once disobedient and without God. And they agree that God set aside Israel to give mercy to Gentiles. They see steps one, two, and three. They just don't see step four in the Bible, despite Paul presenting it clearly here. They overlook that God says he will do the same for Israel in a future day, extending mercy to them despite their past disobedience. Paul summarizes this whole thing powerfully in one verse, verse 32. God has left each group, that is Gentiles and Jews, He has left each of those groups in their respective periods of disobedience for a time. Paul uses the term shut them up. The the better way to say it is God shut out. God shut out each group from having mercy for a time and then extended mercy to the other group during that period and then he flips them, shutting out the other to provide mercy to the other. And in the end, he's fair to both. So as you and I sit here today... If you think what we're seeing in this text is unfair, it's because you're only witnessing one step of that plan in this moment. You're only seeing step three right now. You're seeing Israel out and us in. That doesn't seem right. Well, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Add steps one, two, and four, and it's all perfectly fair. And there's no requirement, not in Scripture certainly, that says God has to be doing all four steps at all the time to everyone simultaneously. Remember, he's a a potter that can do whatever he wants with the clay. By Paul's teaching, we come to appreciate that God's plan is to use one group's disobedience as just cause to go to the other group with mercy, and vice versa. Now, when you think about what Paul's explaining, what you should be feeling about this point is this sense of awe over just how big God is and how big this plan is. And if you do feel that way, then you'll share in Paul's exclamation that he finishes the chapter with, because he says in verse 33... Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That, friends, is the proper response to understanding the sovereignty of God and the power of God to extend mercy to all. When you learned earlier in these three chapters that God chooses those who will receive his mercy and who will not, when you learned that God has determined to open doors and to shut doors for whole groups of people over the course of history, when you learned those things, if that caused you to question God's love or even the truth of what you're reading here in the Bible, then as they say, you're doing it wrong. Or as we might say, you're understanding it wrong. Because your response should be what Paul just did. That should be your feeling as you read through these verses. Because you're witness to the wisdom and the knowledge and the power of a God who's bringing a work of salvation to all people, but according to his will and purpose and plan. That's unfathomable how he's stitched this thing together so that it can happen in the way we've seen it. His judgment and his mercy are unsearchable and beyond our understanding. So if you think you know better how it should be, Paul says, you're in no position to counsel God on these things. You have nothing to offer him. He has nothing to profit from a relationship with you or anyone. 
And he owes you nothing because he already has everything. So all God is doing in all of these things is for his glory, not ours. And that's what we discussed earlier in chapter 9, right? What maximizes God's glory? This plan does. So now, you understand how Israel's rejection and their present hardening was appointed by God, how it was both just and purposeful, but also that it's temporary. Ultimately, that God will fulfill his promises to that people. You know, their current situation is not reason to cast doubt on God's faithfulness. You don't need to sit around wondering if he's going to be faithful to you because he doesn't seem to be that way to Israel. But in reality, he's being very faithful to Israel. He's a promise-keeping God, doing exactly what he told those people he would do in their law. Now, at the same time, you might wonder, well, is there anything in my covenant with God that might result in me being put under judgment for some period of time or because of some disobedience? And the answer, of course, is no, because you're not under the law. In fact... Neither are those of Israel who come to faith in Jesus Christ, because to come to faith in Christ is to come out from under the law. So anyone who has come to know Jesus as Messiah is no longer under the curses of the law, whether they ever were there or not. As a Gentile, you were never under the law. And as a Jew, you cease being under that law once you come to Christ, for it is fulfilled in him. So you and I can live in the light of our salvation, knowing that it will never end, it cannot end, it cannot be taken away from us. But that begs a huge question. What do you mean, live in the light of that salvation? How should we live then? What does the life we live look like in light of that kind of salvation? And that's the topic Paul picks up next. So we move to that section now, the third major section of the letter of Romans, beginning in chapter 12. We're now moving from the explanation of how you were saved, which is Romans 1 through 8, to an exhortation of how you live in light of that salvation. So simply put, you're leaving a conversation about justification, chapters 1 through 8. You're moving into a conversation about sanctification, chapters 12 through 15. Now, of course, in between those two sections was 9, 10, and 11, which was what about Israel? And we've now addressed that. Now, because we're moving into this third and final section of the letter, it's time to consult your Romans structure chart again, which I've handed out. You'll notice when you look at chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, I've blocked them into two blocks because there's a distinct difference in 14 and 15 from the other chapters. But it's all along the same general theme of how do you live out your salvation? Now, I want you to notice our topic is still righteousness. You notice that I I have righteousness in our person or within the body or among unbelievers and so on. We're still talking about righteousness, but there's a huge change now in chapter 12 that you need to understand. Chapters 1 through 8 taught you how you become righteous so as to be able to go to heaven. We would say to be saved. Now the question about righteousness is not that. That righteousness you can never lose. It's not based on your actions. It didn't come to you by works. It's not affected by your sin. It resulted in a new spirit coming inside you. Which spirit do you now have? How good is the spirit you now have by faith? It's perfect. The spirit you're given at the moment of your birth, rebirth in faith That's a new spirit that is perfect. It's Christ's spirit. It has a perfect knowledge of God and the law. It wants to do only what is right and serves God. But you live in a body that is still sinful and they're warring with each other, right? So the righteousness you obtain by faith is God's righteousness appointed to you by that faith and it is perfect. And as a result, you have been freed from any concerns about earning salvation. You already have it. So that means your life now can be directed at serving Christ without fear, without worry. You're not trying to meet some standard. You're not trying to keep something you might lose. 
You don't have to worry about whether or not today you did enough to keep God happy with you. He's perfectly happy with you all the time because the righteousness you have before Him is His own Son's righteousness and He can't be happier than that. And yet, the way you serve Him, the way you go about serving Him, though, matters to Him. That is, the way we live still counts for something. And we have a term for that. It's your personal righteousness. It's not the righteousness you've gained from Christ. It's not the righteousness that determines your eternal fate. It is a different righteousness. It is your own personal righteousness. And in these chapters, Paul is going to give us a prioritized list of ways in which we are to live out the righteousness we have in service to Christ. How to progress through this plan of action. That progress goes, as you notice in the chart, from... Your righteousness as a person, to your righteousness within the church body, to your righteousness as a witness before unbelievers, and then finally in your role in society. And you're going to have to appreciate this structure, otherwise his instructions in these chapters, they just sound like a laundry list of do's and don'ts. And that's the farthest thing from the truth. In reality, this is a carefully prioritized system for directing your approach to serving Christ. And the structure has a lot of benefits. Chief among them is it resolves conflicts that can arise from competing priorities or values in this system. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that as we go through the teaching. So look at the chart, and you can see it's represented like a bullseye. Each ring in that chart represents a relationship in which you have to seek for righteousness. That is, you have to seek to be outwardly righteous in these relationships. The heart of the bullseye represents your relationship to God personally. That is, your righteousness as an individual before God. And moving out, the next ring is, is your righteousness among believers. The next one is among unbelievers. And then finally, with the government, with society. The outward movement of those rings sets the priority for where we work and how we resolve conflicts. So the center of that bullseye is your highest priority. Simply put, the thing that should matter most to you is your righteousness before God. Your obedience to God in all respects. But you move outward from there, you find that priority diminishing. For example, your relationship with God is more important than the relationship you have with other believers. And the relationship you have with believers is more important than the relationship you establish with unbelievers. So, as you attend to your personal holiness with God, let's say, in the bullseye, as you attend to that, you're going to strengthen your walk. And in the course of the strengthening of your walk individually with Christ, you're going to be better equipped to attend to the needs of those outer rings. So you have to work your own sanctification from the inside to the outside. Let's start where Paul does. He starts at the bullseye. Your relationship with God. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is. That is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Alright, so this is the bullseye of our chart. This is the blue. Your relationship with God. And you only have two verses in chapters 12 through 15 that deal with the bullseye. Just two verses. Some of these rings get whole chapters. So you're thinking, well, this must be a very simple one, kind of an easy one to ease in on, right? We're just going to start with something simple. Uh, wrong. This is the most challenging of anything in all of the list, of all the chapters. And notice Paul's transition. He says, therefore, which just says we're moving from some earlier point. But the difference in this case is he's not moving out of a point in chapter 11. 
He's actually moving out of a point he made at the end of chapter 8, before he went on his little sidebar into 9, 10, and 11. We'll do something we did here at the end of 8. Remember at the end of 8, I told you to look at the end of 8 and look at the beginning of 12, and you notice how they fit together? Let's do that again now. If I put the final thought of chapter 8 next to the first thought of chapter 12, you'll notice they're seamless. Romans 8.38 For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's not just that the words connect, the thoughts connect. Nothing in this world or the next world can ever separate you from the love of God, and so therefore, don't waste any more energy trying to earn what you already have. Instead, work on these things. And what are these things? Well, he says, begin by attending to your own personal righteousness, or we could say holiness. Remember, the righteousness that brings you into heaven is not your own righteousness, that's Christ's. But that doesn't mean your personal righteousness doesn't matter. Our personal righteousness still matters to God because it's a means of glorifying Him and of achieving the mission of the church. Now, obviously, we can't pursue personal holiness until you've come to faith in Jesus Christ and received His righteousness. Hebrews 11 tells us that apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. And without the Spirit of God living in you and working in you, you don't have an engine to drive the spiritual change that we're talking about because you can't do it to yourself. And for that matter, without the Spirit of God inside you, you don't have the spiritual compass that can point you in the right direction for that change. People who don't have the Lord living in them, when they think about making themselves better, they just pick a new way to sin. They don't actually fix anything, right? They just trade one sin for another and call it better. That's the nature of humanity. This is the way I like to say it. Until you've walked the Roman road of chapters 1 through 8, you can't begin the walk of Romans 12 through 15. That's why they come in this order. Now, Paul makes the same observation of sorts at the start of this chapter. He urges us to take up this pursuit of personal righteousness by the mercies of God, he says. The original Greek text is actually singular. Paul actually wrote, by the mercy of God. I don't know why the NASB made it plural. It's not plural in Greek. But the mercy of God here refers to God's compassion toward us as he saved us in Christ and gave us his spirit. That mercy God extended to us is the same means by which we should walk in faith. He's saying the way by which God has saved you is the way by which you will be sanctified. That's what he's saying. You're not starting something different. You're just continuing with what you what you have from God. So he says pursue holiness by depending on God's mercy rather than by seeking to become holy in your own power. Now as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people do prefer to do it their own on their own. Uh, they go on trying to make themselves more pleasing to God but relying entirely on themselves and not on God, making their own plans for how they think they can be holy before God. And this is not the unbelieving world I'm talking about. I'm talking about within the church. Uh, We call it typically legalism or self-righteousness. What it means is it's seeking personal righteousness without depending on God's mercy and direction and calling and conviction. And as a result, you only arrive at self-righteousness. You turn a blind eye to the real sin in your life or you make excuses for the things you don't actually want to confront while at the same time claiming victory over some so-called sin that aren't really the things that the Spirit's asked you to deal with in the first place. One of my favorite examples of the last decade is Christians who would take great satisfaction in never reading a Harry Potter book and yet they gossip at all opportunity or they cheat on their taxes or you know who knows what other sins. 
And I'm not saying you should or shouldn't read the books. What I'm saying is they've picked something selective that they probably didn't want to read anyway and told you they were holier because they chose not to read it and felt very self-satisfied in that result. And it gave them excuse not to think about all the real things God was leading them to deal with. And we all do it our own way. Whether you like Harry Potter or not, you have your own way of doing it if you're not careful. That's self-righteousness. And unfortunately, that's the only kind of sanctification some Christians are willing to pursue. It's living two different lives, if you think about it. One life is public, portraying ourselves as successful Christians, following Christ without regrets, living the dream, you know, shaking hands and smiling every Sunday. And then the other life we live is a secret life. It's filled with hypocrisy and sin and spiritual double-mindedness and all the guilt that that produces in us. And here's the real irony. Neither life is true. Neither is true. Because in reality, that secret life that you're filled with guilt and shame over is a life lived before God in a righteousness appointed to you by faith that makes you loved unconditionally, without guilt, and without shame before God. And at the same time, that public life that you live is actually a hypocritical life, in need of counsel and prayer and forgiveness and love, which we won't acknowledge we need. Now, if you want to escape that false Christian life, if that's you or someone you know, the solution is to do it again according to God's mercy. And Paul gives us the way here. And unsurprisingly, it involves two steps that directly contradict the weakness of that hypocritical dual life. The first, Paul tells us, is present your sinful bodies to Christ as a living and holy sacrifice. The emphasis there being on sacrifice. He's drawing a comparison to the sacrificial system of the Jewish temple. You probably could tell. Every morning and every night in the temple, according to the law, the priests had to go out into the temple grounds and they had to sacrifice an animal to begin the day and to end the day as the law required. This happened every day the temple existed. Day in and day out, sacrifices happened in the temple. In addition to all the other ones that would be done during the day for various reasons. They weren't done for a specific sin, That was rather an ongoing act of temple worship, of service to God in the temple. The animal was killed, and then its body was completely consumed by the fire on the altar. There was nothing left of it at the end. And Paul compares your service to God to that sacrificed animal being brought into the temple and killed and then burned up before God. And Paul uses the verb here when he says present. It's In the Greek, it's in the aorist tense. And that's important because the aorist tense, we don't, we don't have this in English, it's a tense of verb in, in Greek that describes an action that happens once, but it has an ongoing, continuing effect after it's happened. So what Paul's saying by using that verb is that we must make a daily decision to serve God with our lives by submitting ourselves to God continually thereafter. But you have to make the decision daily. You have to decide to do it, and then it's a continual thing. And that verb choice kind of reflects the struggle of sanctification, of our walk. Because you know all the time as a Christian, you're supposed to submit to God and do the right things. Nobody's confused about that. And yet we still don't do it so often, right? We still struggle to do it, to follow through on our convictions and our promises or to take what we've learned and actually put it into action. It's like there's two sides of us again, Romans 6 and 7. And one side's getting the better of us, you know, some days versus the other. But nevertheless, despite the fact that that's true for all of us, like those priests in the temple, You have to determine every morning to get back up and to honor God in the temple, so to speak, your body being that temple, by making the sacrifices he asks for every day. doesn't matter whether you missed it yesterday, you wake up the next day and you do it again. Paul says, our sacrifice, though, will be our bodies, not an animal, and it will be living, not a death. 
God doesn't want you repeating the the animal sacrifices of the law. Those were merely there to picture what you now have in your daily life. And so our sacrifice today is not to go back and repeat the pictures, but to live out the fulfillment of them, to have a duty of going forward and sacrificing ourselves. So what does that look like? It's easy to say, but what does that actually mean? Well, in short, it's basically everything Paul teaches in Romans 12 through 15. But if I want to put it simply, it means placing the goal of pleasing the Lord ahead of pleasing yourself or anyone else. And in keeping with the meaning of the word sacrifice, it means giving up something that you value because possessing it stands in the way of your personal righteousness. Make sense? And so on every day of your life, literally every day you live as a Christian, there is some specific sacrifice the Lord is asking you to make that day. And he's asking you to make it for the sake of holiness. It stands in the way of you being as righteous or holy in your person as you could otherwise be. And it's something you're holding on to. It's a possession, a relationship, a desire, a thought, an attitude, a habit. It's something that leads you away from holiness. And every day the Lord's going to ask you to bring that before him and burn it up on the altar of your heart, so to speak. To let it be consumed entirely so that by its removal you might be in a better position to please him and over time become more like him. That's what this means to say, make your life a living sacrifice. Now, here's the thing. If you're not willing to make that sacrifice on a given day, guess what? It's still going to be there waiting for you tomorrow. So until you make that sacrifice, your forward movement in sanctification will be impeded to an extent. That's why you find yourself sometimes struggling for seasons in your life, in your walk with Christ. There's times when you just can't seem to rise above that obstacle that's standing in the way of your personal righteousness. You know you should deal with it. You haven't figured out how to deal with it. And you know what to do. And you're stuck. You're stuck on that path because that's the thing God's asking of you now. And the fact that it's so hard is usually your proof of why it's so important that it be the thing now. If you're in one of those seasons, you'll, you'll recognize some of the patterns, right? You still go to church. You still attend. You may even still serve. You may even have a fairly sizable responsibility somewhere. It's not as though you hide. You still go through your daily life. You can't avoid it. But despite the fact that you're participating and and listening and serving, you'll notice those things aren't really moving you anywhere. You're not going anywhere because they're not addressing the sacrifices that the Lord's already asked. Notice Paul says, we must sacrifice what is acceptable to God. You catch that? So if God is asking you to sacrifice your lust for pornography, for example, you can't please him by sacrificing chocolate instead. If God is asking you to sacrifice some of your time by attending Bible study, you can't substitute time spent mowing your neighbor's lawn or serving in a soup kitchen, because that's not what he asked you to do. If God asks you to sacrifice your pride by forgiving someone, you can't choose to instead sacrifice your money by making a donation. We are called to present before God, the sacrifices that he says he finds acceptable. And he has a way of knowing exactly what it is that we're holding on to too tightly. And we're called by our duty to live this way daily. So if it wasn't depressing enough, as soon as you let go of that one thing, there'll be a new one tomorrow. But Paul says that's your spiritual service of worship. And once again, he's referring back to the daily sacrifices in the temple because they were an act of worship by the temple priests when they performed these things. And you and I often talk about serving God through worship. It's a common thought in Christendom because we see it in church all the time. And when we hear of worshiping God, we generally we think about singing songs to God. And that's certainly a form of worship. But Paul gives us the truest form of worship here. 
We worship God when we serve Him by our obedience. That's worshiping God. By agreeing to sacrifice those unholy aspects of our life that stand between us and holiness. That's how you demonstrate a true heart of worship. It's actually the most powerful form of worship that you have. Because any heart, and I would submit to you, even an unbelieving heart, can stand up and sing a song and call it worship. But only a heart of faith that is submitted to the will of God and wants truly to please God will be willing to make the sacrifices that God asks. So, do you want to worship God? Well, then obey Him. You want to serve God? Well, you serve Him no better than when you follow the Spirit's leading. And the hardest part of all in this, I think, is that the payoff that you receive for having made these sacrifices as God requires, those payoffs rarely come in the moment. Sometimes they do. Sometimes you walk away from an addiction or a bad relationship and there's an immediate relief. But usually it's a painful struggle against the flesh that doesn't really happen in a moment. It's never ending. You feel the immediate loss of what God's asking you to give up, but you don't always see the fruit of that obedience for some time. And in fact, in some cases, not even until you get to the kingdom will you finally understand the reward that was waiting for you for your willingness to sacrifice. And therefore, obeying the Bible's call here in Romans 12 to sacrifice will always require a measure of faith. I can tell you that from not just the Bible, but from my personal experience. There's always some measure of faith involved in making these daily sacrifices. Because you have to operate in faith that God, out of His love for you, knows better what's good for you than you do for yourself. That's, that's at the heart of this decision. And that's what he's asking you to basically sacrifice. Something that can't compare to what he's ready to give you in response to your obedience. You just can't see it yet. You have to operate in faith. You have to follow the Spirit's leading and deny your flesh and its desires, knowing that what you're doing in pleasing Christ has its own reward that exceeds the value of what you're trying to hold on to. When we do this, we're operating in exactly the opposite way the world works. We are making our life a testimony in the opposite direction of the world. The world says what? The world says, look out for number one, which is meaning yourself. The world says, get what pleasure you can now, because you only live once. There is no God. There is no hell. That's the way the world thinks in general. But even a believer can sometimes begin to adopt that same attitude of thought, that I better get what I can while I can, grab as much as I can. And the world's priorities are our priorities, even as we sort of paste a thin veneer of Christendom on top of that and you know get to church most Sundays. But apart from that, the world defines us and our calendar and our checkbook, as they say. Which is why Paul says in verse 2, if you want to go about this daily sacrifice in the right way, you have to determine not to be conformed to the world. You have to be. Because the kind of sacrifices God is going to ask of each of us in this daily fashion are going to be sacrifices of things the world tells you you should want. Whether that be the, you know, any of the things I've mentioned. So the call of Romans 12, 1 through 2, stands in opposition to the call of the world. There is no way to reconcile them. You cannot serve two masters, as Jesus taught. So either we are being conformed to the world or we are being conformed to the likeness of Christ. There is no in-between. You're either moving in the direction of holiness or you are moving away from holiness. So in other words, there's no standing still in this path. There's no way you can say, I'm kind of holding my own right now. So how do you make sure that you're moving forward and that you're not moving backward? That's the question. Paul says, the way in which you continue moving forward is to engage in a transformation process that begins with the renewing of your mind. Verse 2. Here you go. Here's the secret to successful Christian living. It's been hiding right here in the open in Romans 12. You transform yourself by adopting the mind of Christ. 
That is your thinking, as it becomes more holy, so will your behavior. You know, there's a whole principle of teaching of of leadership development in, in corporate America that's based on the same basic principle. That is, I change people's thinking in order to change their behavior. This is not revolutionary. But the Bible is saying the same thing. It's just now we're talking in a spiritual context. Paul's talking about spending time in the Word of God and in prayer and in the counsel of godly people, ways in which we gain the mind of Christ, listening intently, considering it carefully, applying it diligently. That's a transformation process. It's one that is done by the Spirit of God in your heart, but He's the engine for that change, but the fuel for that engine is the Word of God. And that transformation happens inside you, but its effects are witnessed outside to the world. Paul says when you seek that transformation, that is when you dedicate your life to the pursuit of the mind of Christ in the Word of God, applying it so that you would transform your behavior, what you'll find happening is you will prove what the will of God is. Now to prove in this context is probably not the right English translation. It's a bit awkward. It means to demonstrate truth through action. So another way to say it is to testify. To testify. As we transform our thinking into the mind of Christ and our behavior follows from that, we begin to testify, that is to the world, what the will of God is. It's like God is the director of some great theater production and you're an actor in the story of your own life. And God is directing you to think in righteous ways so that as you live out that instruction, your behavior becomes righteous more and more. And as you do that, the audience for your life gets to understand the director's will, the director's instructions to you. You're showing the world what God considers to be good and acceptable and perfect, Paul says. In a word, you are a witness. It's how you make decisions. It's how you respond to tragedies in your life. When someone dies, how do you respond? It's how you set your priority in finances. It's how you conduct your relationships. It's how you raise your kids. It's how you treat your parents. It's how you love your enemies. Those decisions and all the others that come along with them are proving what the will of God is to a world that's watching and wondering why we're so different. Or they're watching and not noticing any difference. It just depends on whether we're transforming in front of them or not. That's the first ring in Paul's teaching on sanctification. Living in a way that pleases God, pursuing our personal righteousness in our relationship with God. Knowing we've already been credited with His righteousness, so we're not working our way to heaven, but rather we're working to please Him, to glorify Him. The Old Testament has a simple way of describing the relationship between the eternal righteousness you receive by faith and this personal righteousness that Paul is asking you to pursue. Here's how to understand the two together. In the Old Testament, you find men like Noah being declared righteous by their faith because they're righteous in the eyes of God because of that faith that they had. So they're called righteous by faith before God. But that same man, Noah, is also declared to be blameless because he possessed personal righteousness in the eyes of men. So Romans 12 is telling us to seek to be not only righteous before God, but blameless before men. And in that, we glorify God. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, as always, for the conviction you bring through your word. How sad it would be, Father, if we sat under your feet and listened to your teaching and went home unchanged. So I pray, Father, that we would not do that tonight. We would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers. 
And in our thoughts and our daily actions, Father, our mind would return to Romans 12 and consider what sacrifices are you asking of us and are we listening and are we willing to make them? Thank you in advance, Father, for the grace you will give us to have the courage to do as you ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.